So in that last guided meditation, we've begun to follow the instructions in the text. I've been presenting this foundation of mindfulness as mindfulness of thoughts and emotions. And to say that is both to uh, point to the way this foundation has been interpreted virtually all the time in the West as how we work with it. It also involves a certain amount of cultural translation to say that this is mindfulness of thoughts and emotions. And so what I want to do in this segment is to go right into the text of the third foundation, talk about some of those cultural translation issues, some of the terms, and have us be able to understand the text better and help it also to see how the text is also guiding us to aspects of thoughts and emotions that are very valuable to look at. Okay. So I thought it could be very helpful for us to read the text together. So hopefully, does everyone have a copy of the text? Raise your hand if you don't. You could read with a maybe person sitting next to you if you want to, or is there a copy out on the table? Blake, great. And just a preface in terms of some of the words. You'll see at the beginning the word bhikkhu, as most of you know, means monks. And if we were doing a contemporary uh, choice, uh, making a contemporary choice, we probably would say simply practitioners. So we would uh, avoid the gender specificity and also avoid the focus on the monastic quality. And then I'll just I'll explain most of the first paragraph later, but just to say that uh, words lust, hate, and, and uh, delusion are referring to what are called the three roots of unwholesome states, really, states of mind and heart and body. And sometimes they're translated as greed, hatred, and delusion. And I was uh, giving simpler language in the guided meditation. I was simply calling it wanting and not wanting. And that really lines up with what's meant by greed and hatred. Greed and hatred are somewhat strong. And there's a, there's a continuum, but this is really re referring to the kind of reactive wanting and the reactive pushing away. And the, so the word chosen by the translator here is lust and hate, but it's actually something that's more basic. And uh, were I a translator here, I would choose a little differently so as not to go into those quite so uh, dramatic words, let's say. Okay. And I'll say more about the words. Let's read it. So understanding, understanding some of those caveats, let's read the 
two paragraphs of the text together. And this will ground us, and we'll read it slowly so we can let the words uh, sink in. And how, bhikkhus, does a bhikkhu abide contemplating mind as mind? Here, a bhikkhu understands mind affected by lust as mind affected by lust, and mind affected by lust as mind unaffected by lust, sorry. He understands mind affected by hate as mind affected by hate, and mind unaffected by hate as mind unaffected by hate. He understands mind affected by delusion as mind affected by delusion, and mind unaffected by delusion as mind unaffected by delusion. He understands contracted mind as contracted mind, and distracted mind as distracted mind. He understands exalted mind as exalted mind and unexalted mind as unexalted mind. He understands surpassed mind as surpassed mind and unsurpassed mind as unsurpassed mind. He understands concentrated mind as concentrated mind and unconcentrated mind as unconcentrated mind. He understands liberated mind as liberated mind an unliberated mind as unliberated mind. In this way, he abides contemplating mind as mind internally, or he abides contemplating mind as mind externally, or he abides contemplating mind as mind both internally and externally. Or else he abides contemplating in mind its arising factors, or he abides contemplating in mind its vanishing factors, or he abides contemplating in mind both its arising and vanishing factors. Or else mindfulness that there is mind is simply established in him to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and mindfulness. And he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That is how a bhikkhu abides contemplating mind as mind. It's actually an ancient tradition to read a text together. You can go back thousands of years and find that in multiple spiritual traditions, and it's taken to be uh, quite special, or to have the reading there. I know in Tibetan tradition, uh, the reading of a text is taken to be part of the way of transmitting the wisdom of the text. And so it's an interesting process, and to do that together is interesting. Let me do a little bit of what I was calling cultural translation to give us a sense of the terms and what's being talked about here. Generally, you know, generally the guidance is know what's ever happening in your mind. <laughs> That's pretty clear, right? No, this is this, and this is this, and this is this, and this is this. It's basically saying, track everything and know what's going on. And that is a, a, a basis for, for freedom. And you know, again, the usual way we give the instructions uh, doesn't use all of these terms that are mentioned. But it basically, you know, if we were doing a contemporary version of this, in the usual way it's taught, we would say, no, anger is anger. No fear is fear. No joy is joy. No planning is planning. Right? No, and, and know what they're like. Right? And just be able to track them. 
basically know what's happening when it's happening. That's, that's mindfulness in the realm of thoughts and emotions. So, a little bit of background to understand the text and some of the terms, again, to bridge that culture and ours. The word that's translated as mind is citta, C-I-T-T-A. I would prefer to translate it as mind and heart. It's usually translated as mind. Sometimes it's translated as consciousness. In the Buddhist frameworks, there's actually no word for emotion in the Pali and Sanskrit languages, to the best of my knowledge. The division of the different parts of experience is generally twofold, whereas in the West it's often threefold. And I imagine in other cultures it's, you know, it's even different. Uh, the distinction, the general distinction that we have in the languages of the, the language of the Buddha is we, in translation, we would say it's basically the body and then it's citta. And citta includes what we, in, mo- in many Western languages, call the cognitive and the affective aspects of experience, or mind and heart, or thought and emotion. That distinction is not made in the languages of the Buddha. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) Uh, And in the West, though, sometimes we simply, we actually, in some contexts, we make the distinction be only between mind and body, in some cases. But generally, the distinction is threefold. You know, if you can go back to the Greeks, you can go back to Plato, if you remember Remember reading Plato in Philosophy 101? Maybe one of your better moments. (laughs) And for Plato, there was a distinction between reason, which can connect with thinking, and the emotions and the body. Threefold distinction, which is generally what we have. We, we, We get confused about a lot of these distinctions. We sometimes think, thinking is totally separate from emotions, which is totally separate from the body, and I won't get so much into that level of detail. But we often make a threefold distinction, and we definitely talk about emotions all the time. That's not done in the context of this text. In my view, therefore, to use mind as a translation of citta is misleading. It'd be better translated as mind and heart, or something like that. And so whenever, it can be confusing, it's related to the translation mindfulness also, but whenever we read mind here, we shouldn't think exclusively mental or cognitive. We should think that it includes both what we call the cognitive or the mental and what we call the emotional. Okay? In other words, that's why I present and most Western teachers present this as mindfulness of thoughts and emotions. 
I don't know whether it's a vindication of the Western framework that the studies of the brain point to three aspects of the brain. <laughs> you know, the reptilian brain, the limbic system, and the neocortex. That would seem to support a threefold distinction. I don't know. But obviously you can cut it in two ways and you're still correct. Right? So, interesting, right? So, um, and even the word emotion is used in all sorts of ways. You know, uh, I looked at some of the scholarly work on emotion, and often uh, emotion is understood as the lived experience that's very much connected with cultural construction. In other words, cultures construct anger differently. What anger means, whether it's okay, uh, what you should get angry at, whether anger is good or bad, and so forth, are often culturally determined. In some cultures, anger is cool. In other cultures, it's not. And so, I'll just do this briefly, but I I don't know if we'll come back to this, but um, some psychologists make a distinction between affect which is purely at the physiological level and needn't be in consciousness. So uh, people who've studied emotion cross-culturally say that affect is universal. In other words, what, what occurs to someone when there is anger at the level of physiology is very, very similar. What occurs at the level of what I was calling emotion is not necessarily similar. So there's affect, which is more physiologically based. There is what's called feeling. This is one account, which is, uh, on some accounts, is when it comes to consciousness. Affect might not even come to consciousness for people. People, as we know, people can be angry and not know that they're angry. And feeling is when it comes to consciousness, but it's still... uh, um, still very physiologically based. And then there's emotion, which is how we experience it with the full cultural construction of something like anger. So probably for our purposes, we just need to think of the more physiological level and the fact that emotion is culturally constructed, that there are meanings for the different emotions that we get from culture or from family. Okay? Um, Okay. So... Basic idea is that uh, citta involves thought and emotion. I should also say that we're often confused about what emotions are, what thoughts are, how they're related to where we've been confused about this, culturally speaking, for hundreds of years, if not longer. Okay, I'll see if that comes back, but I'm, it's something I'm interested in. I've been particularly interested in how we often think that emotions aren't connected with thinking, right? that if I'm angry, I'm just angry. But, and people sometimes think thoughts are totally separate than, from emotions, but when you actually look at them, you find that they're totally interrelated. When you are mindful of thoughts and emotions, you'll see if you're angry, you're gonna have a storyline very often, if not most of the time. And that, that's related to the cultural constructive aspect of emotions, that you know certain emotions, uh, are constructed, then the culture says, if this happens, you should be angry, right? It's permissible to be angry if this happens. 
But if that happens, you shouldn't be angry. <laughs> okay. Are, are you feeling how, how all of this is a little wobbly in our consciousness? <laughs> it's interesting. It's very interesting. Okay. So let's look at the, let's look at the text um, and look at the first instructions. I think we'll probably look at this, have a little bit of discussion. That'll probably take us to lunch, and then we'll come back. And so the Buddha begins with this question, and if I'll translate this, practitioners. How does a practitioner abide contemplating, being mindful of mind and heart, who are of thoughts and emotions, as thoughts and emotions? How do we do this? And, and the Buddha starts by giving his own response, which is to say, in particular, look at certain aspects of thoughts and emotions. Again, in this text, he's not saying, know when there's planning, know when there's anger, know when there's emotions, but rather there's a very specific pointer to look to those aspects of experience which tend to lead to suffering and look at those which tend to lead to freedom and really know particularly those patterns of mind which lead to suffering and those which lead to freedom. The first instructions point to looking for when our experience is colored and dominated by greed, hatred, or delusion which are taken to be the core roots of suffering. What I was calling a kind of compulsive wanting or compulsive pushing away. And we're instructed to look very carefully for these factors. Very significantly, he then says, also look at these, in the course of talking about the three, also look at these factors, greed, hatred, and delusion, in terms of when they're not present. What's implied is not just absence of these factors, but the fact that when they're absent, other qualities are there. That when we're not greedy, there may be generosity. There may be the opposite. There may be the absence of greed may mean that there's balance, that there may be generosity. There may be non-greed. And this is actually implied by the text, but not explicit. And most of the commentators would say, when we talk about non-greed, we're actually talking about positive states. So he's really saying, know when there's greed and know when there's generosity. Know when there are positive states as well. Know when there's um, hatred or irritation or anger or not wanting but also know when there is something like love or compassion or, or really caring in relationship to one's own experience or other people. Know when there is delusion, the third of the aspects. Know when there is confusion or bewilderment. Know when that is predominant in our experience. And also know when the opposite isn't there, when there's clear seeing, when there's wisdom. So what's being pointed to in these initial instructions is to um, tune in 
especially set our radar for those three states which are generally called unwholesome, is a translation of akusala. We sometimes translate it as unskillful. Those factors which tend to lead to suffering. And it's taken that reactivity, that compulsive pushing away or grabbing hold, tends to lead to suffering. That's, that's a whole teaching in itself. We've looked at that some. And it's really uh, something for us to explore, partly in our own practice. Does, is that what we find in our practice? Do we find that uh, the wanting is a form of suffering? Because sometimes we, we certainly don't get that message in our culture, do we? That compulsive wanting is a problem. In fact, it's the opposite usually, isn't it? Um, it's very interesting. I mean, the, the economy is based on compulsive wanting. Advertisements are based on that, right? If I don't have the latest iPhone, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> right? Or if I don't have this, or if I don't have that. It's very interesting. I, um, some years ago, Diana Winston, who's also a Spirit Rock teacher, and I taught a class called uh, Greed Management. <laughs> we had very low enrollment. <laughs> Another way to say that was that we had a very good teacher-student ratio. We had two teachers and five students, <laughs> which was fine for us. We were really into the topic. And we really, uh, we really explored, it was very interesting, we explored the nature of greed for, it was a five-week class. It was at the time of the opening of the El Cerrito Bed Bath & Beyond. <laughs> and for our final exam, we had people do silent walking meditation for 30 minutes through the newly opened Bed Bath & Beyond in El Cerrito. and then report back. But more interestingly, <laughs> more interestingly, we really wanted to explore the nature of the mind or our being when it's taken over by greed. That's what these instructions are inviting. Right? Really study what is that wanting like? What's there? We have a lot of illusions, again, partly culturally formed, that this wanting is really a great state to have because it's going to lead to happiness. Right? And that aversion is also, we can really follow that compulsive reaction is often good to follow, maybe because I'm right. right? I should yell at this person and be judgmental because I'm in the right. There are a lot of complexities here I want to acknowledge, but I always think of the, uh, I think it was a New Yorker cartoon, which showed a, showed a, uh, a gravestone epitaph, and the uh, epitaph was, he had the right of way. <laughs> okay, we probably could unpack that and take a whole half day to do that. But anyway, what we found, the, the encouragement is here, really study when there's greed or that kind of compulsive wanting. Set your radar for it. 
And this will be one of the items that I give in the homework, which I'm going to give out in the afternoon for what we do in the next few weeks. Really study it. You can study it in relation to lunch. It might appear in a mild form. Even right now it might be thing. You know, let's get over talking about greed and let's have lunch. <laughs> which has some ironies if you unpack it. <laughs> okay. um, and so uh, we really want to explore. This is really the, really the part, big part of mindfulness. Something is present. What's it like? Let me explore it. Let me have curiosity, interest, and really hang out with it. One of the teachers that uh, sometimes comes to Spirit Rock, who's an American who's been a, a monk in the Thai forest tradition for many years, is named Achan Samedo. And he has a characterization of mindfulness in terms of exploring states. He says, look at something so you can say, it's like this. And he makes a hand gesture. Greed, it's like this. Despair, it's like this. Generosity, it's like this. We want to really explore it. This is actually something very exciting about mindfulness because for the most part, we have never looked at the core constituents of human experience very carefully. And it's wondrous. It's like, it's like really looking at the miracle and the wonder of our lives for the first time. Not always pleasant. I remember I once had a retreat, I'll talk about this in the afternoon, where I was angry for uh, 10 days in a row for about 18 hours a day on a retreat. And, uh, and I had good guidance, and it, the anger wasn't at the level of rage. It was a workable level of anger, and I inquired into anger for 10 days. And it was so fascinating. Anger's never been the same. You know, and you can do, and I know over time from doing retreats, it's especially helpful at retreats for maybe something like a day long, but where something's happening, we can really look at it. I've done the same with fear, with judgmental mind, and it is amazing because we don't actually really know how these are very well. It's that's what I have found. And so the invitation is really study greed. Really study aversion in its various forms, anger, hatred, irritation, not wanting. More difficult is to study delusion. <laughs> How do you study delusion, you know? You know? As Donald Rumsfeld once said, there are the known knowns. Do you remember that press conference? I think someone made a movie of, about Donald Rumsfeld, which I think it's called The Unknown Knowns or something. You know, remember he said he was trying to basically give a, a witty way of saying there may still be weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, even though we haven't found them. He said, uh, um, how do you say it? Um, Yeah, there are the unknown knowns, there are the known knowns, and there are the unknown unknowns. <laughs> In other words, who knows? <laughs> anyway, uh, so it's hard, to, it's hard to study delusion. Sometimes we can uh, approach it through studying confusion or bewilderment or when we know that we're confused. What's it like? Sometimes it's actually a little deeper. 
Sometimes we need some help. What is maybe look at an area where you know you're kind of confused about. See what it feels like in the body. You know, um, when we looked at greed in the greed management class, it was really really interesting. You know what we found, and I, we had never studied greed so much. We did it for five weeks. We studied greed. We had, uh, we're really just asked, study greed when it comes up in your everyday experience and look at it. I had never done that before. It was fascinating. We found what characterizes greed. And a lot of it's going to be pretty commonsensical. It's highly impulsive. There's a very strong tendency just to act on it immediately, right? Without wisdom. We found that it was very self-centered. It's helpful to know this because the way I'm saying this, it can actually, it makes it less attractive, right? It was very self-centered. The greed was always about me and my need or my desire, right? Often there was a total lack of consciousness of any other being in the world. There was also typically a lack of attention to consequences. That was very interesting, right? It was just totally focused, and this makes sense, totally focused on getting this. See, when we study it, we start seeing these things. Oh, I have no attention to consequences. That might not necessarily be wise, <laughs> right? But we, until we've looked at greed, we don't know that, right? We don't really know that. And we uh, found that there was a lack of sense of uh, uh, not just awareness of others, but there was a lack of sense of connection to others. I'm not responsible to others. Sometimes there was a strong sense of entitlement, like I deserve this, right? Very interesting. And um, I remember when we did our final exam, it was so amazing to go through Bed Bath & Beyond. Mostly, what I remember was that there were just so many products that I had had no knowledge that they actually existed. <laughs> and I found myself wanting things that a short time before I did not know existed. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know how it is now, but when we came in there, why did you come in? There were 40 kinds of garbage cans. <laughs> the thing that I really remember was there was some kind of apparatus designed for a television set which could have like a tray on top of the set so you used all the rooms. So obviously some of these products could be useful. But I found that wanting was de- developing. And we studied that and we debriefed. So the upshot of this set of instructions is first to look at the so-called unwholesome or unskillful tendencies. And the invitation I'll have for lunch is to do that. See what comes up if there's greed. And again, we're not wanting to judge this. We're just wanting to notice it. I think sometimes that there are three main, this this isn't from the text, this is from my own observations of mindfulness, that there are three kind of main aspects of mindfulness. One is just simply the noting that this is happening. right? And that is very useful. These are kind of uh, increasing levels of depth. The first is I just know that it's happening. I make the note. You know, I know that there's greed there. 
I may not be studying it, but I know I'm greedy, or I know there's anger there, or I know that there's planning there. I just know that it's happening. I make a mental note. That's one aspect of mindfulness. A second, and this is, uh, only can really happen when something lasts for a while and doesn't always happen with thoughts that way. The second is, I really can explore something in the moment. That's where I investigate. Oh, okay, I'm feeling greedy. I really want that type of garbage can. What's that feel like in the mind, in the body? Oh, it feels, I feel my body inching forward. (laughs) Okay, I feel my mind thinking about where I would place that garbage can thinking of how wonderful it is, thinking of, I really like that green color. Again, some of this is, it's the greed that's the problem. It's not the buying of the garbage can, okay? mm-hmm. or even the wanting the garbage can. It's the compulsive quality that is the problem. Right? And I, So the second aspect is I study it. The third aspect, which uh, is that we start to see the causal chains involved with particular states. So I see what triggers how, and this is related to the latter part, the second paragraph. When does my greed arise? What tends to trigger my greed? Or what tends to trigger my aversion? And I can notice, maybe I start noticing someone says something judgmental to me and I go in, I, something develops in my mind when that happens, right? I get defensive or I get angry or whatever. So first, naming or noting. Second, exploring. Third, seeing the causal patterns, the patterns of what leads to this, what leads to what. How does this get triggered? Some of that can happen also through reflection. You know, like if I'm at the end of a day and I know, gosh, I had this really crazy interaction with this person earlier in the day. How did, how did I get there? And maybe I reflect, oh, she said this, I said that, she said this, and then I was off to the races, right? Then I really got reactive. We can do that in reflection. But we third thing is we start seeing how a given state arises, and then we can also later see how it passes away. Okay? Last, last comment, then we'll move towards lunch. This first part of the instructions also invites us to tune in to what are called kusala, or wholesome states, states which are conducive to freedom in the traditional teachings. And they would be, again, they're described in the text as simply the absence of greed, hatred, delusion, but the implication is actually of more positive states. As I mentioned, non-greed is understood as generosity, non-hatred is understood as loving-kindness or care, And non-delusion is understood as clear-seeing, mindfulness, and wisdom. So this last teaching, I think I'll continue more with it after lunch, is actually also looking when there are good things happening, when there are beautiful states, and actually really know, no, I'm really clear now. When I work with people, it's very, very interesting. I sometimes work with people when they're in states of distress, when I do one-on-one work. And they may be in a state of distress, distressing thoughts, distressing emotions, and think that's all there is. Often I can notice that person is really, really clear about what's happening. 
there's not delusion. This person is saying, you know, I really got triggered by what was said and I went here. And my state of mind, I'm going into my old tape loop about unworthiness or whatever. You know? And um, that person at the moment was just focusing on the negative and didn't realize there's a lot of clarity. We often don't see that. And sometimes I take my rule and say, you know, you're really, really clear about that. And that is a tremendous resource. And you can actually, there are actually are experiential ways where you can go into the clarity, which is very positive, a wholesome state, and build it so it takes up more of the space and the negativity takes up less space. But the, the main point here is that, so tuning into the, the positive states that are present actually can be a very important process. You know, it, it takes us away from thinking, oh, I'm just caught and I'm suffering, right? Because when there's clarity, non-delusion, it actually can be very, very crucial. But most people who are caught in distress don't even see that they're actually maybe very clear. Right? And that, that we can actually focus there, build on that, and so forth. So that's that last instruction, is to focus and know when there's non-greed. And I guess here we would say know when, the, know when there's generosity, or not, maybe not needing something, or maybe contentedness would be another way of saying it. You know, again, that's again, a lot of what we're looking for is that which flies under the radar. Gosh, I'm really contented now. It's maybe in terms of uh, feeling tone, it's more in the neutral zone. You know, we're kind of wired to especially go for the dramatically positive or the dramatically negative. Have you noticed? <laughs> it's like the, uh, you know, the wiring of you know, the re- reptilian brain, I guess, right? It's like this is either, either going to eat me or I'm going to eat it. Or there's a possibility for making babies. <laughs> That's at some level of the brain, right? That's very primal conditioning, right? And so we're kind of wired for, wired for that somewhat. And so looking at the, you know, looking at contentedness may be radical. Gosh, it's more the neutral zone. We don't pay attention to it so much, right? So can I really notice? Oh, there's. Just general contentedness now. Wow, let me tune into that. What does contentedness feel like? Again, we, we, we're so much looking for the strongly positive negative, we don't see it, right? These first instructions are saying, look for greed, hatred, delusion. And again, translating as I did, wanting, not wanting, and so forth. And then look for the positive qualities related to the absence of greed, hatred, delusion. So my invitation will be to do that in the lunch break. Or I shouldn't, it's not really a lunch break. I would say, rephrase that, lunch practice. <laughs> Our lunch practice session. And you can have, uh, I'll do a few, let me, I'll do, I'll close with a few announcements. And we haven't had discussion, I'll make more time for that right after we come back from lunch. Um, for lunch, if you'd like to stay in silence, and really do the practice, that might be benefit, that could be very beneficial. If you uh, want to talk some with people, try still to track your experience as best you can. And I'll invite, uh, and you know, one option would be, 
be uh, silent for the first 15, 20, 30 minutes and maybe talk with people the latter half and really do this practice with your lunch. Really notice what's there and so forth. So you can eat in here. You can uh, eat outside. Uh, how many people don't have a lunch? Okay. You can go to the Woodacre Deli, which do you know where that, anyone not know where that is who needs to go? Okay. And you can always ask Michelle about that. Uh, yeah, the Woodacre, okay, so I think people know that. And let's see, yeah, we'll have a bell at, uh, we'll come back about 1.40. I think I'm gonna, I have a few announcements that I need to give now also. That'll take seven or eight minutes. But we'll come back at uh, 1.40. There'll be a bell rung at 1.30, okay? Ten minutes, when you hear the bell, it'll be mean ten minutes before we come in and start a practice. You can take a nap in here and so forth, okay? Okay, now a few announcements. You can, you can stop the recording. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.